book of Romans. And inside your bulletin is a sermon outline, which I hope you will find helpful to follow along with me. And you'll see our text, Romans 5, verses 1 down through 11. I'm just going to read from the beginning of this passage. It is an intense and deep and complex passage of Scripture. So again, you will find it helpful to have the outline. Here then the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, I think I'll stop there for now. We will read the rest. Very important. But the first word is crucial. It is a marker in the book of Romans. And several times in the book of Romans, after Paul has explained deep and intricate and wonderful realities about the gospel, then he says, therefore. And that's a marker for you and for me that we are beginning a new phase in our march through the book of Romans. So I'm glad you're here. And he's going to have this arching trajectory, this rainbow of beautiful colors of the gospel through the end of chapter 8 in this section. And we're not going to rush too quickly through it. For you see, the book of Romans in the first four chapters gives us essentially the what of the gospel. The what of the gospel. And now he begins the so what In the light of all this, since this is true, now, how do I live out this good news in my life? And the first question that he begins to answer is, what do I gain because of this good news? If you get an insurance policy, you read through it, maybe a whole life or a term policy or homeowner's insurance policy, there are benefits that you get from having that policy. Do you know the benefits? So many people I've talked to, you know, they, 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 they had a flood in their house and they never knew that their homeowner's insurance covered it. Do you know the benefits that are yours? I know I've told you sometimes that the church can be full of atheists. Now, not the kind of atheist who says intellectually I don't believe in God. No, you, you intellectually believe in God, but the church can be full of practical atheists. P- what's practical atheism? Practical atheism is living as though the gospel wasn't true, that you didn't know the gospel. And there, that's a lot of us sometimes. We don't live the so what even though we have the what of the gospel. And so this is what Paul is bringing to you to encourage you today. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so he begins the so what in such, a, in such a gorgeous way. And he tells us. Now, <laughs> James Boyce preached six sermons on this 
these 11 verses. And Ray Steadman, several, and Charles Spurgeon, a whole bunch. I'm going to do it all in one. So you'll have to work hard. If you didn't get a bulletin, you'll need to grab one and uh, follow along with me here. Because the first thing he lays out are the benefits of what he's just taught us in the first four chapters. And he says the benefits are peace with God, there in verse 1, access to grace, and then thirdly, hope in the glory of God. And the first thing, letter A, is peace with God. What's he talking about? Well, that's what the first four chapters were all about. That man and men and women, uh, since their birth, have taken up arms in rebellion, in insurrection against the holy God, their own creator, the father of creation. They have turned on him, turned their backs, and said, I will be the captain of my soul. I must be the master of my fate, no matter who you are. And they turn against him, and they take up arms against God. Christmas Eve, an army of angels came. Martin Hahn reminded me, he said, you know, John, the description of the angels was that they were a military convoy. That was the terminology, as though this huge Roman convoy of soldiers had come to attack in war, to respond to the insurrection and the rebellion. But instead, this, this battalion of angels says, peace, peace. For the Prince of Peace, and we spoke on Christmas Eve, didn't we, about the Prince of Peace has come. We talked about having the peace of God in our hearts, but I have to tell you here today, please understand this. Nobody can have the peace of God unless they first have peace with God. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's cosmic peace. It is the the settlement of the war. We have surrendered. We Christians, we have been taken captive. It says we've been taken captive. Captivity's captive, it says in Corinthians. But we've been taken captive by our prince of peace. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is assuaged. The penalty is paid. The blood sacrificed turns the wrath of God away. And we are at peace with God. Steve Brown, who's one of my favorite radio preachers, he gets, he gets under the saddle of some of the other preachers. Because we preachers, we like to stand up here and take our bony fingers and point them at you and wag you and tell you you are bad, bad Christians. And God, remember the old TV show Maud? Remember B. Arthur played Maud? You're all too young to remember that. And when she was puffed at her husband, Maud would point her finger and say, God's going to get you for that. Now it is true that God is the judge of all the earth. But Steve Brown would say, he says it often. He says, Christian, you need to know. God is not angry at you anymore. He doesn't get angry at you. Do you believe this? See, then he takes away all that manipulation of the other preachers, you see. But this, this marvelous message, 
you have peace with God. How? He makes it clear. Not because God is some big Pillsbury Doughboy up in the sky. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapters 1 through 4. The great and beautiful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His death and resurrection for you brings peace. And then... He speaks of the next benefit. He calls it access. And there's beautiful words in verse 2. Access, faith, grace in which you stand. But the main word here is access. Access to what? Access to grace. Access to God. I love this benefit that is ours. You can come and f- to the place where grace is found, the mercy seat. And if you were a Jew in the first century and you were told that you have access to grace, to the mercy seat, you would scratch your head and you would say, what? I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to the Temple Mount. And I know how it goes. Access, what are you talking about, Paul? It's one of the most restrictive places in the world, this mercy seat, this place of grace. And you come, and there is this wall that's, that you come to the courtyard of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles can come this far and no further under penalty of death. And even the Romans allowed this penalty to honor the Jewish religion. The Gentiles are now on the outside. And, but then the Jews can go in. They have access to the next courtyard. But then at that next courtyard, you find the courtyard that divides the women from the men. And here, all the Jewish women had to stop. But beyond that, the men could go. But then there was another wall, and only the Jewish priests could go into there and perform the sacrifices that will go to the holy place of the temple. But then there's a final barrier, and do you remember what that barrier is? It's the curtain. That huge curtain that kept, that kept people in the holy place from coming into the most holy place. And one priest, one time in the year, was allowed to come and bring the atoning sacrifice into that holy place. They would tie a little bell around his ankle. Why? Do you know why? So they could hear it still ringing and to see if he was still alive. But you, you know the benefit in your life of the work of Christ is access to grace. Have you sinned? Have you, you, you say, Pastor, you don't know the thoughts I've had, the words I've spoken, the things I've done. The doubts, the cursings, the, you don't know. But God knows. What do you do? Access to grace. Come, he says. Come to the cross. And he says, then we hope in the glory of God. And here he's talking about the destiny, the destination, the heavenly end point of your life. This hope in the glory of God. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. I know you remember it because we studied it here. In John 17, Jesus cries out to the Father. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son 
that your son may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had uh, before the world began. And then Jesus cries out on your behalf and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me. And Paul is telling us this is your destiny. Peace with God, access to grace. But you, re he says, you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that you will see him face to face. He who it is said dwells in unapproachable light, you will approach. You will be changed in an instant, glorified. In this we hope, and hope, it's not the weak, mealy-mouthed English, oh, I hope so. When he speaks of hope here, when he speaks this word hope, he's speaking of a certainty that is in the future. Though we do not yet possess it in full, it is our hope. We stand certain that the glory of God is our destiny. Do you have that? These are your benefits given to you. And in this, he says, we rejoice. And the theme of rejoicing now is woven through this whole passage. The response is one of joy. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Do you believe your destiny is glory? I heard a comedian once say, he said, um, two people are riding in an airplane sitting next to each other. One is an atheist and the other is a born-again Christian. And suddenly the plane loses altitude and it's plummeting down toward the earth. And the Christian cries out, or the, I'm sorry, the atheist cries out and he says, well, this is going to be a meaningless end to my meaningless life. And the Christian cries out, I'm coming, Lord! What a difference. What a difference. Which is your destiny. The meaningless end of a meaningless life. I'm coming home to glory. I'll fly away to glory in Christ. So these are the benefits that are given to us. But now Paul says, we have to talk about the so what of all this because life is hard. And point number two, you see it there. What does this mean when, for me when I am suffering? He picks up in verses three and four. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What about, Paul, when I'm suffering? Because, Paul, don't you know Suffering can really mess you up. Suffering is tough. Suffering does a number on me, Paul. Paul says, yes, but you know something. 
you know, I talked on Christmas Eve about my one of my favorite Christmas characters, Lioness Van Pelt in the Peanuts cartoons. You know, but really, really, my favorite Christmas character is Ebenezer Scrooge. You say, who? Ebenezer Scrooge? Are you serious? What about Tiny Tim? Make him your favorite. But you know Charles Dickens' great novel, The Christmas Carol. Maybe you've seen the movie or, or you know the story. But Ebenezer Scrooge is a man who is ruined by suffering. His father is mean, negligent, unkind to him, and his heart is broken by that cruelty of his father. His sister, beloved sister, tragically dies. His heart is crushed. He takes refuge in in building his reputation, gaining a fortune, but he falls so in love with money that he becomes mean and miserly. So full of self-pity, full of anger, full of greed, he becomes this man whose life is tragic and scarred, bitter. You see, suffering so easily causes the human heart to be full of self-pity, and it turns into a, into a foul putrid of bitterness that makes us mean and unkind and self-absorbed. But Paul says in this text, for you Christians that your response is different. The Christian is different. How are we different? He says, we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. We rejoice knowing, and you see, you know something that the atheist next to you on the plane that's going down doesn't know. What do you know? And in your experience in 2016, 2017, through the 21st century that is yours, you're going to suffer. Jesus Christ said in the world, Christian, you will face tribulation. Becoming a Christian does not give you escape from suffering. The word here in the Greek language is thlipsis. Now, there's a bunch of different Greek words for suffering, but he chooses the word thlipsis, which is used uh, to press and crush Olives to squeeze the oil out of the olives. Pressure. You ever feel pressure? Unhappy pressure. Unpleasant pressure from your health, from your financial situation, from the way your children speak to you, from the way your parents hurt you your husband, your wife, do you ever feel a pressure? But Paul says, in the midst of it, you will rejoice and you will believe. And now he lists a few things there, right? And he says, A, suffering produces endurance there in the middle of verse 3. Endurance. They will survive. People will, in this church, in this church, We have these glorious trophies of people who have been through terrible suffering and yet they emerge and a character emerges inside of them, that endurance. They they don't give up. They don't run away. They don't turn from God. They don't renounce their faith, but they are faithful. 
and their character emerges as one who marches home to glory. Like the soldier who returns from the battle, wounded, yes, wounded, yes, wounded, yes, beaten, Yes, they've seen some terrible things. Yes, but they march home, head held high with character. Endurance leading to character. And that character, he said, produces hope. And again, the word hope. Not only is rejoicing woven through, but hope is woven through this passage. And the hope is, my God was with me, and my God continues with me. My God will be with me. Whatever comes. You know, Charles Wesley used to say, let men and devils do their worst. Christ is my rock. I, I wish I can say that. I want you to say that. Whatever comes your way. Character produces hope. And then he personalizes it. And like Paul, he says, we will not be put to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Oh, the world may mock you. The world may scoff at you. They'll laugh with the comedians when on, as the plane goes down, you say, I'm coming home, Lord. And the world may laugh at you, but it is true. You have the hope. You're going to glory. You will live forever. The atmosphere of heaven is, in fact, the Shekinah glory of God. That's why you will live forever. In your new bodies, you will inhale the glory of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, this sermon is entitled, Living Out the Good News in My Life. And it's not just that you have the benefits of peace with God and access to God and the thrilling anticipation of the unveiled glory of God, but you live out the good news as you suffer. Christian, this is your, this is your hope. You can do it. We can do it together. We endure Not in your own strength, otherwise it's just a boast, but it's living out the gospel, gripping your soul. And then the third point this morning is that he grounds all of this. There's a cement foundation for all of this. And he says that the gospel comes to us in our weakness and God's love triumphs. See, you see that soldier, and he's big and strong, and you say, but I'm weak, but I'm a sinner, but I struggle. Paul says, I know. So let's remember, remember the benefits one more time. The middle of verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice, there's that word again, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is the cement, this is the foundation for it all. And the first thing that you have to be able to say is that God's love is, has been poured out in my heart. Do you know that? And get the picture, the mental image. It's this beautiful image of this huge barrel of fresh rainwater being picked up and the Holy Spirit pouring, 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 pouring the love of God into your heart. And for the first time in the book of Romans, he mentions the word love. You see, the work of Christ has secured the love. The wrath is turned away. The love is poured upon you. Now, God's love is poured into your heart. And he's looking forward. He's looking forward to the end of chapter 8. We will get there. But you need to know the end of chapter 8 where it says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Death, nor life, principalities, nor powers, nor anything else can separate you from the love of Christ. And what kind of love? To whom does this love go? Oh, well, it probably goes to the pastors of the church. Well, maybe not the senior pastor, but that a good assistant pastor. Yeah, the love of God is for him. Maybe a few of the elders, too. But me, how could he love me? So Paul speaks to this. He anticipates that question. And look at what he says. That even when I was weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Weak. Yes, are you weak? Do you ever feel weak? Actually, the better translation is not weak, but powerless. Powerless is better because it's the absence of any strength. Like when you just don't feel like you can get out of bed and put your feet on the ground. That's when Christ came for you. And he uses another adjective that is even less flattering. Christ died for the ungodly. And ungodly here does not mean without God. It means anti-God, against God. Again, that was our posture. I am my soul's captain, my soul's master, not you. And he says, I know. And my love is still on you anyway. He goes on. It gets worse. This description of you it says, when I was a sinner, the word sinner, how distasteful. God shows his love for us. There's the word love again for the second time in the book of Romans. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. What regrets do you have from the bad choices you made, from the people you hurt, from the loss you have endured because of your own folly and foolishness? And yet, he doesn't stand like the old uncle who looks down on you and he's not like you. He's not like that. Even though you're a sinner, still Christ died for you. And the word enemy, these words, terrible picture of humanity, but the Bible requires you to hear them so that you can understand the magnitude of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' love for you. Oh, friend, you behold his love where? How do you know he loves you? Is it the amount of cash you have in your checking account? Is that how you know he loves you? Is it that fancy car that you drive is proof that he loves you? Is it the fact that your body is healthy and vigorous that is the proof that he loves you? Is the fact that your children are just perfect and going to be on the cover of Life magazine? How do you know that he loves you? And the answer, of course, he tells us here, is the cross. The cross. There is the evidence. Even when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And now Romans 1 through 4 just pours back on us in verse 9 and verse 10. I am justified by his blood. I am saved from the wrath of God. I am reconciled by the death of his son. I am saved by his life. That's what changes you. That's the so what of the gospel now. You see, Ebenezer Scrooge is not my favorite character because he's mean and nasty and greedy and selfish. Ebenezer Scrooge is my favorite because he's changed by the love. Dickens explains it so beautifully by the love that he experiences and beholds. And his doom, his doom is somehow assuaged. That third visit of that third ghost. His doom is assuaged. And he wakes up in the morning and he is redeemed. And he has new life. He is essentially born again to a living hope. And he's turned into a man of love and generosity and the sweetness pours out on him. And you know, we're told that the people in the town of London are all a titter. They are amused at Ebenezer Scrooge. And Charles Dickens tells us, even as they mock him, he says, he cares not a whit. Is that you? If you're a Christian, do you rejoice? And you don't care if people know you rejoice. The happy Christian marching through life. He says again, we rejoice. We rejoice. He concludes this passage. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. James Boyce says, to rejoice in God is the greatest of all human activities. More important than your job, 
more important than your hobbies, more important than making your 401k rise, uh, and, and be more important than that is rejoicing in God. Ray Stedman puts it like this. He says, the one clear mark of a true Christian is that he rejoices. And so I invite you this morning to make that true of you. For some of us, it's maybe more difficult because suffering is hard and suffering can mess you up. And yet, I invite you to include yourself in the song. I invite you to include yourself in the reconciliation. I invite yourself to count yourself among the happy Christians who rise to celebrate the reconciliation they have with God. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come, O Israel. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth, let you and you and you and you receive her king. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we are challenged by this extraordinary, rich, and thick passage of the Bible. 